So like, I went to the cinema last week. I don't get to go to the cinema much at the moment to see uh, West Side Story. Did oh. you? Most of the planning that went into that visit was trying to find a time of day and a cinema at which I could be fairly confident that few other people would be present. So we ended up seeing it at a retail park uh, in Broadstairs <laughs> at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. And it worked. Brilliant. It was pretty much only us That's in the cinema. That's tr- a true so. Sondheim fan. Got to love it. Wow. I think the film is not going to make its money back in any no, anytime not. soon. It is officially a disappointment to the studios. It didn't do um, its opening weekend prediction. Um, but it they're hoping that it's got um long legs as it were that it will it will continue it you know it, they haven't yanked it from from cinemas they're hoping that it's a slow burn it was supposed to come out christmas i think last year um yep. sometimes saw it in february of last year what did he think he really likes it and he has very fixed views <laughs> on the uh, 1961 <laughs> film <laughs> and i think okay. he's felt that this solved a lot of the problems i i agree with sondheim i thought it was absolutely <laughs> magnificent uh, yeah, I, I, thought, really, really? I thought it's the casting was just first class everybody is 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 bringing their a game to it um and the music has never sounded better thank you gustavo dudamel <laughs> david would you care would you care to comment <laughs> i would care to comment I I would absolutely agree about the score. The 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 scoring of the movie uh, back in 1961 is lush and plush. On Broadway, they had I think 27 in the pit, and then when it was recorded, they added another 12 players. So it still sounds quite spare, but it's stronger than it than it is in in the live theatre. On the movie soundtrack, it's nearer 100 players, and it all sounds a bit too lush. And the new film is much closer to the Broadway original, and it sounds tougher and sharper and cleaner and brighter and stronger. Now, that was a nice thing about the remake, is that in the original production, I really hesitate to say this, but somewhat incoherently, somewhere is sung by an offstage voice. Um, In the original film, they gave it to a character. In this film, they gave it to a person who can sing it, the character who can sing it, in a way that says, for us immigrants, somewhere there is a place for us, which was a really intelligent uh, thing to do, I think. It was great. I think that sort of corrected the imbalances from both the original Broadway and mm. the original film. Well, <laughs> listeners, that, that was just the informal chat. <laughs> 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 that, this, we haven't even started yet, but I think we should, don't you? I think we should harness that energy and build from there. Johnny, take it away. Let's do it. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in 1983 at the Playwright Horizons Theatre in West 42nd Street in New York. On a white stage, a man in 19th century dress sits at an easel. He has a large drawing pad and a box of crayons. He stares at the pad for a moment, then turns to us and begins to speak. A chord of music sounds, a tree appears and other bits of scenery start to assemble. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And we're joined today by two guests, one new and one returning, David Benedict and Jason Hazley. Hello. 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 
Uh, you heard them talking, trading expertise in a rip-roaring way, which the next hour, the exhilarating hour ahead, can only build upon. Our new guest is critic David Benedict. David is the former arts editor of The Observer and theatre editor of The Independent, the London theatre critic for Variety and weekly columnist on the stage newspaper. A regular guest on TV and radio arts programmes, he is writing the authorised biography of Stephen Sondheim. That's fortunate. What a, what a lucky coincidence. What a lucky <laughs> extraordinary. Yes, he's like Billy Preston. Yeah. <laughs> he's just wandered in off the street. Yeah. Got the Beatles in, Nicky. Got the Beatles Got in. Got the Beatles in. David also plays the Borchester Echoes, redoubtable and feared theatre critic Tristram Hawkshaw. We love him. A.K.A. Linda Snell's nemesis on The Archers. Brilliant. Goodness me. David, my question to you, if you could choose only one, which is your favourite Sondheim score or show? This is very difficult. Um, but I will say I will opt for best score as distinct from best show. And the best score for me is Merrily We Rode Along. The the last number in the show, which is a huge emotional climax, is a song called Our Time. And it's it's a song of infinite hope, sung by people who, at the start of the show, you have seen much later in life. They've really compromised themselves. And the show tracks backwards to this moment where they all meet for the first time on a roof and they become friends and you see all the hope mm. and all the innocence and whenever I hear that song if it just comes up on on my headphones if I'm traveling somewhere at random it makes me cry mm. I think it's wonderful the show as a show I don't think fully works for reasons one could get into and go on about at length, but um, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I'm, I'm worried we're, this is going to be a hard one, this show. I just think people won't talk. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. Uh, the resurgent guest is Jason Hazley, who appeared on the 13th episode of Backlisted really? back 13? in 2016, six years wow. ago, now, wow. to discuss <laughs> Burt Fegg's Nasty Book for Boys and Girls by Michael Palin and Terry Jones. Jason has two hats, one labelled musician and the other writer. As a musician, in his music, musician's hat, he has played with Portishead and the British Para Orchestra, and with his writer hat, he has written for Charlie Brooker and Paddington. And he wishes, to, he wishes it to be known he is nothing if not constantly for hire. So, Jason, say, similar question to you. If you could choose only six... Which is your favourite Sondheim score or oh, show? Boy, oh boy. I, I struggle with this because sometimes my favourite show is Merrily, sometimes it's Company, sometimes it's A Little Night Music. But I think if I wanted to land on one, and it's really hard to do, it would be A Little Night Music because it's, it's so totally charming and it's, it's just so light and delightful. During the first lockdown, um, I used to wander across Wandsworth Common very often listening to a little night music in my headphones as I went on my prescribed walk and occasionally singing out loud and alarming young mothers. So I think just just as an apology to them, I think I ought to choose a little night music, which is a show which is almost entirely, for those who don't know it, 
is almost entirely written in three beats to the bar instead of four beats to the bar, which is one of these typical Sondheim, I'm going to set myself a challenge and see if I can meet it style things. And he met it absolutely beautifully. Thanks, Jason. I would just like to add that anyone who's read my stuff or listened to Lot Listed knows that I am, uh, I probably the greatest night I've ever had in a theatre and therefore probably one of the greatest nights I've ever had in my life was the first time I saw Sunday in the Park with George, which I I I almost hesitate to talk about because basically everyone will be weeping on this. I find <laughs> I watched it again like yesterday. I can't, I find it almost impossible to get through the second act of it because it's so central and strong. And John, I know you hadn't seen that before, had you? I know that you've seen it this no, week. No, I did. I watched it. Um, I watched it on YouTube yesterday and was in indeed in floods of tears <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really amazed that i've got to this stage in my life and, and not i mean it's been an amazing experience reading these books and, and thinking about sondheim for the last two weeks unsurprisingly uh, you'll have guessed that the book or books we're discussing today are both by the late stephen sondheim the first finishing the hat Collected lyrics, 1954 to 1981, with attendant comments, <laughs> principles, heresies, grudges, wines, and anecdotes. And the second, look, I made a hat. Collected lyrics, 1981 to 2011, with attendant comments, amplifications, dogmas, harangues, digressions, anecdotes, and miscellany. They were each first published by Alfred A. Knopf in the USA in 2010 and 2011, respectively and were described by American Theatre Magazine as the best and most gorgeously produced books of their kind ever put together for a living composer. They were also available in one package called The Hat Box, the collected lyrics of Stephen Sondheim, (laughs) which is a sumptuous thing in blue, pink and gold. It really is absolutely spectacular, this. Is it still in the shrink wrap, Andy? It is. It's open. <laughs> it's open. But look, it's got the the. Sh- the thing is, can you imagine what the tax and shipping was for this from the states? Astonishing. It cost a fortune anyway. Now this episode came together quickly uh, and rather miraculously in the space of a couple of conversations in about twenty minutes last week, which I it's, it struck me as it was meant to happen, and subsequently we looked somewhat in disbelief because outside of libraries none of these versions of these books are currently available and it rather might seem to you in an hour's time like we've been trolling you because these books are so brilliant so listeners my apologies um i would imagine that in the light of sondheim's death knopf or another publisher will bring them back into print sooner rather than later and if you go to our website at batlisted.fm, there you will find links to ebook or online versions of both Finishing the Hat and Look, I Made a Hat to Tide You Over. But before the house lights dim and Paul Gemignani counts us off, I must consult the book. John, what have you been reading this week? Okay, I've been reading a Um, inspired, I have to say, Andy, by your wonderful collection of uh, winter reading poetry. I've been reading a a collection of poetry by uh, an American writer called Nate Marshall, second collection called Finna, F-I-N-N-A, which, as you read the collection, you discover is a kind of uh, contraction of fixing to. So I'm fixing to go somewhere. So I'm Mm -hmm. finna go somewhere. Um, It was inspired, actually, by one of our one of our supporters, one of our patrons on, on Patreon who put a poem of Nate Marshall's 
uh, up and I read it and really responded to it and liked it. Who was that? Uh, Valerie Smith. And it kind of, it made a connection. I, I was uh, interested to read about Sondheim's admiration for and liking for rap music and his kind of mentorship of Lynn uh, manuel Miranda. So this book, uh, Finna, is full of, I, th I think, incredibly strong lyric poetry with amazing uh, um, amazing clarity of 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 um of language it's kind of you know some of the poems understandably are angry it's about erasure uh, about uh, the fact that uh, there's an amazing opening um prologue to the book where he talks about land acknowledgement which is now something that if you're in a in a theater in america you you'll acknowledge the land that the, uh, the of, of the particular native american area that you're in and that's something, if you're from the south side of Chicago, you don't have that. He calls it landless, uh, landless acknowledgement. And that's how the book opens. So there's anger, but there's also incredibly witty uh, collection of poems. Uh, he particularly has fun with a guy called Nate Marshall, who's a white supremacist on Twitter, who is um, who, who, who he uh, kind of addresses several poems to as the other Nate Marshall. It's one of those books that works brilliantly as an audio book, and I'm gonna I'm gonna play a, a short poem. But this is available in the states, isn't it? I mean, it is available in the UK, but but it's not published in the UK. It's not right? published in the UK. Uh, it's published by Random House in the states. It was an NPR um, 2020 book of the year. As I say, it's a second collection. I think he'll write more. It's it really he's. I mean, he's an educator. He works, I think he's assistant professor at, at Colorado, um, but he's also a musician. There are some really, really great poems in this collection, and this, I think, is one of them. The Valley of Its Making. Poetry Makes Nothing Happen. W.H. Auden. The people in the streets are plucked up like radishes from dark earth. Heads beat the purplish red of ripeness. The women lead the stupid and brutish to a future they don't deserve. The organized are still unbearably human. They still fuck and hurt and harm and are not actually sorry. The people still fight each other too much and the system not enough. And too often it is not a fight but a bullet. Too many men want to be in the front and don't want to march anywhere in particular. Some of us have degrees and noses to look down. So many want a version of old days that never existed. Many are still unwilling to grow a vocabulary for personhood, even from the words already in them. So many will deny they to a sibling simply because. Our people are messy and messed up and a mess. Nothing about our people is romantic, and it shouldn't be. Our people deserve poetry without meter. We deserve our own jagged rhythm and our own uneven walk towards sun. You make happening happen. We happen to love. This is our greatest action. Yeah. Sold. <laughs> yeah, just some really wow. love. You Brilliant. know, you've, I've been thinking a lot about rhyme and internal rhyme and rhythm, and I just think it's a, it's, it's thanks, this, Valerie. This book really delivers. Thanks, John. Yep. Brilliant. Andy, what have you been reading? Uh, I've been reading a book, a novel by Elspeth Barker, her, so far, her only novel, O Caledonia. I remember this being published, John. I'm sure you do. Yeah. 1991. 
Hamish Hamilton. I feel I've read it, but I know I haven't. I bought it <laughs> when it came out. Yeah. And I read it last week. <laughs> it's been on the shelf for 31 years. I'm glad I'm not alone in things Oh, my like God. This. It can't be 30. It is 30 years. 31 it? years since O'Caledon. It's been, it's been out for so long that it's gone through the life cycle of being an exciting new novel that was shortlisted for the uh, Whitbread Prize to going out of print for years to being rediscovered. It was... Um, Galley Beggar put it out as an ebook in 2014 with an introduction by Penelope Lively. And now Weidenfeld, WNN Essentials, have brought it back into paperback. Maggie O'Farrell's written the introduction. So it's gone through the life cycle of any, any cult book, you know, a big hit, neglected on its way back. I thought this was absolutely wonderful, this novel. It goes to show that uh, uh, something that you love can sit on your shelf for 31 years hiding in plain sight waiting for you to get round to it it's such a good book this is maggie o'farrell's description of it from her introduction O caledonia is an account of janet's life from birth to early death taking in sibling bonds and betrayals parental intolerance the horrors and discomforts of adolescence and the saving grace of books the world you're about to enter is one of prickly tweed coats of grimly strict nannies, of irritatingly perfect younger sisters, of eccentric household pets, and of enormous freezing castles. It is one where girls are considered to be merely, quote, an inferior form of boy, unquote, and Calvinist propriety is thrown into relief by the seductive wildness of the Highland landscape. So what this novel is, O Caledonia, is it's fundamentally... Shirley Jackson meets Dodie Smith, <laughs> a.k.a. we have always captured the castle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, that is what this book is. And I know lots of people who listen to this podcast would absolutely love this novel. In fact, John, I was reluctant, in a sense, to talk about it today because I'm sure this, was, this novel was commissioned by our friend Alexandra Pringle. It was. When she was at Hamish Hamilton. Ali Smith describes it as the best least known novel of the 20th century. <laughs> Reminded me of the Brontes, Muriel Spark, Sheena Mackay. Yeah. And, and in fact, Alice Thomas Ellis, David, who I know you are a ah, great yes. admirer of. So if that sounds like your sort of thing, listeners, this is your sort of thing. I'm just going to read you the opening of the novel, and I, I'm confident that there'll be a spike in sales directly <laughs> after you hear this. <laughs> Chapter one, Janet. Halfway up the great stone staircase which rises from the dim and vaulting hall of Ochnasaur, there is a tall stained glass window. In the height of its gothic arch is sheltered a circular panel where a white cockatoo his breast transfixed by an arrow is swooning in death. Around the circumference, threaded through sharp green leaves and twisted branches, runs the legend Moriens said Invictus, dying but unconquered. By day, little light penetrates this window, but in early winter evenings, when the sun emerges from the backs of the looming hills, only to set immediately in the dying distance far down the glen, it sheds an unearthly glory. Shafting drifts of crimson, green and blue, alive with whirling atoms of dust, spill translucent petals of colour down the cold grey steps. At night, when the moon is high, it beams through the dying cockatoo 
and casts his blood drops in a chain of rubies onto the flagstones of the hall. Here it was that Janet was found, oddly attired in her mother's black lace evening dress, twisted and slumped in bloody, murderous death. She was buried in the village churchyard next to a tombstone which read, Chewing gum, chewing gum, sent me to my grave. My mother told me not to, but I disobeyed. (laughs) A half rhyme, incidentally, which is something we'll return to later in this podcast. (laughs) Janet's parents would have preferred a more rarefied situation, but the graveyard was getting full, and as the minister emphasised, no booking had been made. After that, only the spay wives, the fish wives, the midwives, the ill-wishers spoke of her, endlessly rehearsing a litany of blame, for blame there must be, and no one could blame the murderer. Their voices whined and droned, spiteful as the sleety wind which slashed their headscarves across their faces as they huddled by the village bus stop, dreary as the wind which spat hail down the chimney as they took Sunday afternoon tea in the cold parlours of outlying crofts, where the Bible was open beside a ticking clock and rock buns were assembled on snowy doilies, malignly aglitter with the menace of carbonised currants. So they blamed the mother for giving the child all those books to read. It's not natural for a bairn. They blamed the father for his ideas about education. They blamed everyone and everything they could think of, but in the end there was grim assent. The lass had only herself to blame. The subject lost its appeal and was closed in favour of the living, who offer continuous material for persecution. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I think Arctic Monkeys, um, if they're looking for another album title, have got Beams Through the Dying Cockatoo up there, haven't they? (laughs) Oh, it's such a great book. I'm sure we'll come back to that one. Oh, Caledonia by Elspeth Barker. I'm so so pleased you read it after all these years. It's really There you go. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message. I was asked to do a book of selected lyrics. I said I would want to do collected lyrics, that I say all the lyrics, including some that I've discarded or that got discarded in rehearsals or on the road with the shows, but that I really didn't want to do it unless I could write some essays about lyric writing. And it turned out to be so large that it's going to be in two volumes. They have never understood and no reason that they should. Finishing the Hat is a song from Sunny the Park with George that's about the creative act. And the song's about the concentration required to create something. Finishing the hat. How you have to finish the hat. How you watch the rest of the world from a window. Well, that was Stephen Sondheim, of course, uh, explaining how the book came about and what the title Finishing the Hat, where the, fin- the title Finishing the Hat comes from. It comes from a song from Sunday in the Park with George. Let's ask the question that we always ask our guests. Um, Jason, I'll start with you. When did you first uh, read or hear about these books, Finishing the Hat and Look, I Made a Hat by Stephen Sondheim? A friend of mine uh, pointed them out to me when I was at a point where I wouldn't shut up about Sondheim. And he said, well, you really ought to, um, you really ought to see these books. And I wasn't really aware of them at the time, but I found them and got them and... They're they're just extraordinary. I don't 
I don't want to go in with both feet at the deep end too soon, but the thing is that this is, if you wanted a a, a book about, well, a book from a creator, how do we do this? So there's a so you take someone who is one of the most extraordinary imaginations and creative forces that that has ever drawn breath, and then say, would you mind? putting everything you did down for us in these books and then taking the back off the clock for the entire thing as well and saying, <laughs> here's how I did it. Here are all my worksheets. It's phenomenal. There's a there's a trick um, that the magicians Penn and Teller do, which I think is called Lift Off or Blast Off, where they do a version of that uh, trick where someone gets into a box and they're separated into three pieces and then they're reassembled. And they do the trick, and then they do it in perspex boxes. Mm. So you can see the entire trick being done. <laughs> yeah. And it's okay, more yeah. impressive when you know how it's done than when you see it as a performed effect. And that's yeah, what I think right, these right. books are doing. These books are saying, here we go. Let me take the back off the clock for you. I'll show you how it's done. And you say, well, hang on. It was good in the first place, and now it's extraordinary. In his introduction to the first volume, Finishing the Hat, I made a little list, a Sondheim tribute list of the different <laughs> types of book he sets up in the introduction of Finishing the Hat. And it contains, if we're trying to communicate to the listeners what these books are, they're, they're collections of lyrics, but they are also memoir, archive, songwriting manual, guides to creativity, critical analysis, a brief history of the entirety of musical theatre <laughs> and extremely waspish entertainment, <laughs> to name but seven. <laughs> you, know, you, do, you don't half get your value for money from the hat box. I mean, I, so, I, I genuinely do not know of any other artist who has written a handbook to their craft uh, that goes anywhere near approaching this for its kind of wide shot and close-up. David, do you know when they were written approximately or how long Sondheim took? Several years. He's on record as saying that it was 14 years between the commission and the first publication. So clearly... Goodness. Stephen Sondheim, given the given the project, would you like to publish your lyrics? He, he, he went, yeah, sure, hang on. Give me a decade and a half, and I'll just have some thoughts about them. <laughs> I mean, he Give didn't. Me he never. He never worked quickly, did he? And no, it, and no. it shows because everything yeah, is so very, very. Give, give me nine hundred pages. I think it's like <laughs> nine hundred pages, and I I might be able to do it. No, nothing about this book feels like. Hey, should we stick out your lyrics? Yeah, yeah. I'll do. I'll, I'll give. Yeah. Me, can you give me a yeah. few months? I'll I'll do an introduction. I just want to emphasize this point before I ask David about Sondheim himself. John, you hadn't read these books before, no. had you? And I'm really, I want to capture your experience of... <laughs> well, of... You, you, had, you had talked about one of them, perhaps finishing the hat, mm -hmm. on a, uh, and I remember being struck by the bit that you read, thinking, ooh, that's, that's very good. That's, that's excellent. And I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a natural Sondheim fan. I mean, it's, I, I think I probably am now. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of mildly obsessed. <laughs> I'm going to be boring everybody about Sondheim for the rest of my life. But um, Welcome. Yeah, well, exactly. I, I feel, yeah, where better to be, as it were, um, kind of uh, inculcated into the cult. But the, the, the point about these books as books 
for me, it's like, this is the book that I want every great creative artist to produce. It's, here's my work. Here's where my work came from. Here are the theoretical principles that I tried to base it on. Here's what I think works. And by the way, here's, here's an earlier version, which I kind of prefer, but we didn't put into the... It's like, if you are interested in Sondheim, I, I can imagine, you know, you just want to... I, I mean, as I did yesterday, sat with the book open, watching, you know, Sunday in the Park with George, because I, I wanted to watch the show, mm. but I also wanted to try and feel what it was like for Sondheim to be still thinking. He's still cares about each moment each word each line of every as a kind of a 900 page record of 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 somebody's deep commitment to their to their art and craft i don't think there's i I don't i can't think of a book that's like it i really can't i find these tremendously inspiring books Mm. from the creative point of view that as jason was saying to see how someone creates the magic by sitting there day in day out until the magic works by trying out various spells that don't work <laughs> david yeah. biographer of stephen sondheim i assume you have read the book several times <laughs> as you say but when did you first encounter sondheim's work can you can you recall uh there's a sort of short intro and then a longer version. The short intro is <laughs> is that Very my sometimes. parents my parents um, had a few, not many LPs, uh, and and uh, one EP, um, and and for younger listeners, <laughs> uh, an EP an EP was a four track a four track single, um, and uh, I have that four track single above my desk. Uh, and it is of the original Broadway cast of West Side Story. Um, I very much doubt that I, uh, however small I was, I very much doubt that I looked at who any of the personnel were, and I don't think I even knew what a lyricist was. I'm sure I didn't. And uh, but that was that was my first introduction that I listened to: Geoff Sakrupki, the Tonight Quintet, Maria. And I feel pretty on that EP. I listened to it quite a lot, um, but I didn't really understand what I was listening to. And then when I was a teenager, for reasons I, I don't know, I went to see this show called Gypsy. I told this story, uh, pardon the name drop, uh, to Angela Lansbury. When, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I almost, you know, you almost didn't notice that, did you? Um, uh, it was so subtle. It's like a clang sound, um, an anvil sound effect we can put yes, in there. It was, yes. <laughs> so Sondheim was given a, uh, a special Olivier Award about 10 years ago. And um, he called me and and said, you know, what what's the form and and what shall I say in my speech? And I just, you know, I, I blathered something or other. And and he came and he gave the speech and it was preceded by Angela Lansbury's singing liaisons from Jason's favourite show, uh, A Little Night Music. And happily, you can find that performance on YouTube. Uh, and um, I, I said to Steve afterwards, please, please, can can you introduce me to to Angela Lansbury? So he did afterwards. And um, I said, it was a great pleasure to meet you. You ruined my life. And she looked a little, <laughs> she looked a little surprised. Uh, and I explained that when I was a teenager, I went to see this show called Gypsy. And she was in it. And... I said the the whole thing 
completely blew me away. I I had no idea that musicals could be that dramatic and that exciting. And I assumed on the basis of that, that all musicals would be like that. And therefore, <laughs> life has been one long disappointment. Uh, and she laughed, um, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> but but the, that was that was absolutely my response. I just... I was yeah. just aghast at at this astounding piece of theatre that yeah. happened yeah. to be a musical. Well, look, I'm going to David. I'm going to ask you in a moment for your whistle stop tour of. Uh, <laughs> for anyone who is not familiar with Stephen Sondheim, we want to lead you gently by the hand into uh, his world and the world of these books. And throw me I, roughly. I'm, I'm happy to be. <laughs> throw you in the jazz deep end, indeed. Um, but I think we should start by hearing how he got on with his mother. So, And so she wrote me a letter and had it hand-delivered the night before she went into the hospital. And she said, opening sentence was, before I undergo open-heart surgery, which she had underlined three times, I just wanted to tell you that I have only one regret in my life, which is giving you birth. And when I got this note, and then she went on, I thought, I was stunned first, and then I thought, oh, my God. I'd always thought all those years that, like so many parent-child relationships, it was misplaced or misguided love. That it was all, you know, about my father, and she didn't know where to place her funeral. Then I realized she never wanted me on Earth. I was an inconvenience. Oof, as they say. <laughs> David, the reason why I wanted to hear that, apart from the insouciance with which Sondheim characteristically tells that brutal story is to say that that Sondheim's mentoring just tell us who was Stephen Sondheim where did he come from so he is born and brought up in New York City in the San initially in the San Remo building which is on Central Park West um very beautiful art deco building he is the son of Herbert, who is a dress man successful dress manufacturer, and Janet, sometime uh, Foxy, as she was known, and she Oof, um, designed the dresses, and it was all very successful. However, he undergoes the divorce of his parents when he is ten, and his mother gets custody. It's a very as that clip would indicate, it's a very tricky relationship. Um, and <laughs> mm. when he's 11, he meets Oscar Hammerstein, who is huge in musical theatre. And Steve gets sort of enveloped into the family and Hammerstein becomes his surrogate parent, but also becomes his teacher and mentor. Sondheim has often said... Uh, if he'd been a geologist, I would have been a geologist. It so happened he was a songwriter. Sondheim is musically gifted. He takes piano lessons early mm. on. He then gets lessons from Hammerstein in into how to write for musical theatre. And he writes a show. It doesn't get put on. It's called Saturday Night. Uh, the first show he does put on is a little-known show called West Side Story, uh, for which he writes the <laughs> lyrics uh, to um, a score by the impossibly famous already Leonard Bernstein. Um, on a break. 
and yeah, he has a he has a very very yeah. lucky break, and <laughs> yeah. uh, and goes on to to write many many more shows. He writes one more show, which we'll come to as a lyricist, and then uh, pretty much throughout writes his own music as well. And David, um, I want to move back to the books in a minute, but just in a nutshell, what is it that Sondheim does from the seventies onwards? You know, we've talked about people will look at West Side Story and they'll perhaps not see how revolutionary it was in its day. But nevertheless, when Sondheim is working on his own and he's teams up with Hal Prince, what is it that makes him so important in the history of not just musical theatre, but the theatre in the 70s and 80s? From 1970 to 1981, he and Hal Prince revolutionise what musical theatre is and what musical theatre can do in terms of subject matter, in terms of tone, in terms of just ambition. You know, that none of the musicals he writes, which are, if I can get the order right, Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Pacific Overtures, Sweeney Todd and Merrily We Roll Along, they are all utterly unlike each other. He writes a song for a film called The 7% Solution. And uh, in that movie, the song he writes is called I Never Do Anything Twice, which could have been the subtitle of his books. He hated repeating himself. Lots of other mm. novelists, playwrights, filmmakers have a hit with something and then go, well, I think I'll write another one a bit like that uh, in order that you can clean up. And he refused to do it. And those six shows that he wrote with Hal Prince opened the door to big ideas. I mean, you know, Sweeney Todd is a is a serial killer slasher musical. I mean, no one had ever done anything like that. And that's just one thing. Well, let's hear a clip now. This is uh, Sondheim talking about the, his lyric, A Little Priest, from Sweeney Todd. I wanted to hear this because this will give listeners a real flavour of what the books are like. You know, Sondheim's voice here is very close to the voice that appears in print. So uh, this is uh, Sondheim talking about a little priest from Sweeney Todd. The very first preview of Sweeney, I sat there with Hugh Wheeler, who wrote the book, and at the end of the first act, after Mrs. Lovett and... Todd have concocted their scheme of chopping up people and serving them as meat pies. And remember, nobody in this country, unless they were born in Britain, knew who Sweeney Todd was. So they didn't know what the story was. They had no idea about the meat pies. Well, you know me, bright ideas just pop into my head and I keep thinking. When Mrs. Lovett, at the end of the first act, I'm getting a chill as I think about it, that very first preview, Mrs. Lovett gets her idea and there's a little note in the art. She says, well, you know me, broad ideas just pop into my head. And I was thinking, and the entire audience went, and they started screaming with laughter because they had no idea that it was going to be this outrageous notion of cannibalism. What is that? It's priest. Have a little priest. Is it really good? Sir, it's too good, at least. Then again, they don't commit sins of the flesh. So it's pretty fresh. Heavenly. And once I got that and I got the scheme for the song, then I had written myself into a hole because most of the professions have to be one-syllable professions that rhyme. And there aren't a lot of them, I'm sorry to say. There are a lot of two-syllable professions, but I'd written it with jada da da dum 
yada da 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 masculine rhymes, meaning one-syllable rhymes. And then every now and then there's a chance for a two-syllable one. So that was the difficulty. I just made lists and lists of every profession I could think of, which is why you get things like sweep and even a non-professional like fop and priest. You know, even priest isn't exactly the right one I would have started with, but there are so few one-syllable professions. In the year of reading Dangerously, I referred to these two books as, quote, the two books to have given me the most pleasure in the century so far. <laughs> and, and here we are in 2022. Nothing's changed. I mean, I, I, Jason, that little bit we just heard is the exact thing you were talking about. The trick and then another trick. Yep. Yep. It's like, uh, honestly, if we, if we wanted to, we could do an entire backlist just about this one song because it's Jesse, <laughs> Jesse Green from the New York Times said, this is probably the greatest first act closer that has ever been written. Where do we start with this? So it's a waltz, okay? So it's a nice, light, bouncy thing, but it's about cannibalism. And just to combine those two ideas and go, and I'm going to make this the closer of act one of a musical and you're going to enjoy it and it's going to be full of ideas. Uh, ideas even to the point where he's actually stretching himself and he's having jokes with himself about the notion of lyric writing and rhyming. Mm, Butler, mm. got anything subtler? Uh, you know, that, and <laughs> what's, the, what's the one which he grounds on, the one which he can't rhyme? Locksmith, that's it. And <laughs> there's a pause. You can't rhyme that, so you just carry on. The big thing that really struck me when I watched lots of interviews this on time, the big thing that struck me was... He said, no, I couldn't be a director because I'd just be giving line readings to the actors. But the great thing is that as a lyricist, you're giving line readings to the actor. I'm giving them a rhythm in which I want my joke told. And one of the best yes. examples yeah. is in this song. The trouble with poet is how do you know it's deceased? Have some priest, which is, you know, and so you go, <laughs> okay, that's good. You've, yeah. you've, paced the, yeah. you've paced the gag there. And he does that constantly. There's an awful lot of that in, in his writing. My husband, the pig, um, and the best one, <laughs> which he refers to in the books, he says, this is the greatest moment in any of my shows. It's in Assassins, when Cholgosh mm. is singing the gun song. And he says, what a wonder is a gun. What a, what a versatile invention. First of all, when you've a gun and the music stops and there's a quite an unhealthy pause. And then he says... Everybody pays attention. And when you listen to it, it's, it's, it's absolutely magnetic. But when you know what's going on on stage, there's another layer of how brilliant it is. Because he says, when he sings, first of all, when you have a gun, he points the gun at the audience and he rakes it through the seats. Mm. So the audience is sitting there having a gun pointed at them. And that's why there's a silence there. It's, it's just brilliant. It's like, that's where the God is. God is in the detail, as he said. And he, he gave us a megaton of God. We, we're we're gonna we're gonna come to that right now. Finishing the hat, John wasn't um, Sondheim's first book. Um, his first book was a book of crossword puzzles. Indeed, um, <laughs> he's, he's single-handedly responsible for introducing the cryptic crossword to America. Yeah, um, in the late sixties, in nineteen sixty-eight. Uh, yeah, bizarre. It's true. But Mitch, could you read us, please, the preface to well, finishing the hat because this contains so many of the principles that Sondheim worked from condensed to their absolute purest form. There are only three principles necessary for a lyric writer, all of them familiar truisms. They were not immediately apparent to me when I started writing, but have come to, into focus via Oscar Hammerstein's tutoring 
Strunk and White's huge little book, The Elements of Style, <laughs> and my own 60-some years of practicing the craft. I have not always been skilled or diligent enough to follow them as faithfully as I would like, but they underlie everything I've written in no particular order and to be written in stone. Content dictates form. Less is more. God is in the details, all in the service of clarity, without which nothing else matters. If a lyric writer observes this mantra rigorously, he can turn out a respectable lyric. If he also has a feeling for music and rhythm, a sense of theatre and something to say, he can turn out an interesting one. If, in addition, he has qualities such as humour, style, imagination, and the numerous other gifts every writer could use, he might even turn out a good one. And with an understanding composer and a stimulating book writer, the sky's the limit. Oh. My heart is singing. <laughs> it's so inspiring. It's so inspiring. I wish more lyricists would just read that introduction because yes. people almost always talk about musicals in terms of uh, the songs, and by that they mean the tunes and or the idea of song. They don't actually look at the lyrics. And the depressing thing about most musicals of probably the last 20, 30 years is that the lyrics are incredibly weak and they don't obey any of those principles or they barely obey those principles. Mm. And no, not everybody has to write like Sondheim, but actually he's not saying those principles are not write like me. They're these, yes. This is the essence that you should be yeah. aware of, that you then develop your style to what you want to express in the way that you want to express it. But without those principles, you end up with just sloppy, rhyming, slack nonsense. Mm. John, I was thinking about how this applies to writing. And uh, I was thinking in terms of book writing. Mm. And I was thinking, you know, what's interesting is I think two out of three probably do automatically apply. So content dictates form and God is in the detail. We can carry over to literary endeavour. Yep. Less is more, I'm not sure about. I think that's, <laughs> that's in our line of work. That's debatable, right? But it's, well, because, I, the less is more, know, I think, is, is to do with the fact of two things. One is the way words strike the ear when they're sung, but also that you have to leave enough space for something else to be added in a way that you absolutely do not if you're a novelist. And the something else to be added is, of course, the music. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the features of these books, which is so enjoyable, is, as I referred to the, the earlier, the waspish entertainment value. Um <laughs> I'm going to ask Jason to read something to us in a moment, but I thought we should hear from Sondheim himself. One of the features is of both finishing the hat and look, I made a hat is Sondheim offers his critical appraisals of fellow songwriters, albeit dead ones. Yes. He, he, he doesn't believe in uh, bad mouthing living people, but he's quite acerbic about others. And here's a clip. This is Mark Lawson talking to Sondheim in Cheltenham in 2010. Uh, about a couple of our most cherished songwriters. You're quite tough on 
Oh, two of our favourite English lyricists. I know, I know two of the no, same. Noel Coward and W.S. Gilbert. I know. Um, <laughs> I knew I would never be allowed in this country again, so I thought, I'm 80 years old, it's okay, it's my last visit to England, it's fine. <laughs> I, I knew, but I'm also unkind to others who are American. We will and get to myself, those in a moment. And, and yourself, too. we're going to get to those in a moment, but let's just stick with these two, as you got a, <laughs> you've, you've, you've got a quite healthy hiss there. Um, Noel Coward, whose lyrics I cordially but intensely dislike. Cordially. Cordially. But intensely. We, we say cordially. Yes, but intense. Oh. You, you say cordially? We say cordially. Uh, let's call the whole thing off. We'll have to, won't we? But it's. Um, uh, but intensely, you dislike. Mm -hmm. Well, the attitude is one of the things that gets me about. No, no, there's no question that he's technically very facile and expert, but the attitude. I compare him to Cole Porter. They have a lot in common. They're both verbally playful, very skillful, and both gay with a gay sensibility. And they both like to skewer high society. Cole Porter was born into high society, and Noel Coward was not. The result is that Cole Porter's lyrics are fond while he's skewering them, and Coward's are sneering. You can take, there are two songs that are about similar subjects, one called I've Been to a Marvelous Party, that's Coward, and one called Well Did You Ever, Cole Porter. And you compare the two lyrics, and one of them is funny and sarcastic, but kind. I think he had a Noel Coward bypass. Um, I know he did. I know he did. We <laughs> talked about it once years and years ago. I think Coward uh, suffers very badly from from bad productions. Coward is done badly by people that talk very, very fast in very, very little voices and, and assume that that's good acting. <laughs> and then you go and see Anna Chancellor in, in Private Lives and go, oh, my God, this is something else. And I suspect that Sondheim had not seen a really good Private Lives. And he, if you see a second-rate one, then you go, it's thin and mean-spirited. In the second book, there's a marvellously waspish, waspish little bit where he's talking about operettas and, you know, grandiosity, humorlessness, romantic sweet, melodramatic stories which take place in long-ago times. And what better description of the biggest hits of recent decades? Shows like The Phantom of the Opera and Les Miserables. That's a brilliant put-down of, of the Lloyd Webber, Cameron Mackintosh um, uh, universe. One of the many joys of the book is that feeling that it's like having Sondheim by your elbow while you're mm. watching them. Mm. So there's a, 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 just a little bit I love here where he, he took, he says this, the original title of this song, it's a song from Sunday Park with George. The original title of this song was Primer. I liked the pun, a base for both Dot and the painter. But then I thought about Alan J. Lerner's title pun in the song from My Fair Lady called A Hymn to Him. A title I found so self-consciously clever, I almost turned against the lyric, which proved to be the best one in the show. So I reverted to something pointed and straightforward. A wise decision, I think, especially as I get a chance to point out my cleverness here. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so delicious to read. It's just One so of the things fun. I love about these books is the sense of an author withholding, yeah. but not quite. That, they, that you are in no doubt that if... Sondheim wished to open an elegant can of whoopass on anyone, he would be able to do so. But he's choosing not to. Well, that seems such an important part of the authorial voice, don't you think, Jason? Well, I do, yes, but except that, I mean, he really gives it to Alan J. Lerner, doesn't he? I mean, he just, he absolutely <laughs> just yeah. whacks him with a fucking lyricist spade, you know. Um, 
he's not having it. He's just not having Alan J. Lerner whatsoever. Um, and there, I mean, there are also there are occasions where, as you've already identified, it's like he is he's circumspect about, for instance, Lloyd Webber, and probably Bubli and Schoenberg as well. Um, but he's but he's he, he doesn't actually name them. He's just doing he's doing that thing that. President Biden did a few weeks ago, where he mentioned the, the previous guy without actually naming him at all. You know, <laughs> which is which is sort of which is circumspect and also right on the nose. There's a note to the reader in the first volume, which says something lovely. Which is this is just a. There's another thing about these books is that they are full of the character of the man. And this on mm. on a most this is basically a footnote, but but it's just it's full of the character of the man. It says there are some minor discrepancies between the lyrics printed herein and those printed in other sources, because apart from the occasional misprint, I sometimes change my mind about word choices after first or even second publication. The ones in this book can be considered definitive. Until I change my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in fact, the preface that John read out from Finishing the Hat changes between finishing the hat and look, I made a hat. He loves that Paul Valerie quote, doesn't he? That a poem is never finished. It's abandoned. It's abandoned, that's the word. I'd like to give listeners another clip which shows you how deep Sondheim goes into his own work in the books. And uh, I'm sure lots of people, even if they're not familiar with all the ins and outs of Sondheim's works, will know West Side Story and will know the song somewhere from West Side Story. So here's Sondheim analysing his own work 50 years after he wrote it. There's music in in everything we say in the sense of rise and fall. And I like to write music that comes from the inflection of the way people speak because I think it makes the lyric and the music fit together. Inflection always implies tune. But dum ba da ba ba dum And in the same way, if you start with a musical idea, you want to get a lyric that reflects the inflection. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Of of the music and and the rhythm, too. You know, I remember I saw uh, some of Cole Porter's papers at the uh, Library of Congress, and um, I saw his first sketch for just one of those things. And he wrote it with no note inflection, just the rhythms. He just wrote it. It was just one of those things in the rhythm. Dum, bum, bum. Bum, ba dum, bum. So he took the rhythm of the idea he had lyrically. Then he chose whether the notes would go up or down and all of that sort of thing. The marriage of words and music in the kind of shows I like to write, which are story shows, it's very important that you match the inflection of the way people speak so that the actor can treat the lyric as if it were dialogue, even if a note is held out that way. But if it's A note and the accent is right on the note and not on the A, it works. One of the things I make fun of myself is um, the song uh, Somewhere in, in West Side Story. It was a tune that Lenny had written many, many years ago and tried to insert into every show. And he finally got a sucker. And Because um, it's really an instrumental tune. It, it should not have a lyric. The way it goes, there's a place for us. In other words, the least important word is the one that gets the most accent, right? <laughs> So a friend of mine, Bert Shevlo, used to refer to it as the uh song. So, <laughs> I love the uh song. He said, that's such a good tune. The uh, there's a place for us. That's an example of where the inflection and the music don't go together. You'll never be able to hear somewhere the same way again, I'm afraid, everyone. Sorry about that. But he's, he's like that the whole time, isn't he? He's constantly yeah. critiquing his own output. You know, the, the, 
The introduction to volume two of these books, um, Look, I Made a Hat, it begins with the words something like, well, volume one was meant to be, and he then goes on to critique, it's called reintroduction, the introduction. (laughs) And he goes on to critique the first volume of the books. (laughs) But that's that's part of the genius of it, I think, is that the second volume is a response to the first volume. It's almost (laughs) like a rewrite. It's the Sondheim method. You go back, you look at what you did, you think that worked, that didn't work. This is what my material is this time. I'm going to reapproach it's, it. You know, his his rigour is really extraordinary. Um, and what that means mm. is, interestingly to me, uh, is that he admits that he is very rarely surprised by what an individual performer brings to the work. Obviously, there are there are some performances that he prefers to others, but he's not surprised by an interpretation there's a lovely discussion in the book about um into the woods and um joanna gleason who plays the baker's wife into the woods is a show about um five interlocked fairy Mm. tales and uh most of them are traditional like cinderella but he and his the brothers james the pine created uh, a fairy tale of their own about a baker and his wife uh, and the they're played by uh, Chip Zine and uh, Joanna Gleason. And at some point in rehearsals, um, because her character feels more urban and to a degree urbane than than the fairy tale characters, she um, she said, uh, "I feel like I'm in the wrong story." At which point, a light bulb went off in his head and went, "Oh, yes." <laughs> And he then wrote a lyric where where she sings, "I'm in the wrong story," and you know, and that's a that's a case of being mm. surprised by an actor. But mostly, he's not surprised because he has worked in such granular detail about, as we just heard, inflection, intention, idea, expression. I once taught um, a, a masterclass to to some musical theatre students, and and I said, you know, people say that sometimes is hard. Sing. Actually, I think if you've got ears, sometimes it's an awful lot easier to sing than plenty of other contemporary composers because there's so much there for you to listen to, take on board, and then present because you've got what's happening in the harmony, what's happening in the melody, what's happening in the lyric, what's happening in the story. And if you listen to all of those things and put them all together, Mm, mm. pardon the pun, then you can yeah, express yeah. it as opposed to a song which is incredibly vague and just goes, I love you, I love you, I don't know why I love you, I love you, I love you. As an actor, you have to you have to go, well, what <laughs> earth am I going to do for three minutes where I keep saying the same thing? I don't think you love me, David. I think you're not sincere about that. <laughs> <laughs> you, well, listen, perhaps sometimes most recorded song, I don't know, famous song is Send in the Clowns. And we've got a clip. Jason found this for us, everybody. This is this is totally Jason's hard digging found this. This is the, the South Bank show in 1984. And what you're going to hear is Sondheim tutoring uh, a couple of female singers, the second of which is very young Jay Griffiths, on 
how to sing one specific phrase in Send in the Clowns. And this is one of those moments where Sondheim is the most charming monster. Don't you love us? V and the F, it's, it's, a, it's an awkward moment in the lyric, but that V and that F should be separated. Don't you love a farce? Yeah. And you've got to do it without making it, but you still got to separate them. Let's try from uh, Don't You Love Farce. Don't you love farce? Be careful about the pr pronunciation. There's something again. Love and farce, the V and the F. It, uh, it's, it feels slightly clumsy, those two words, but in fact, what it is is like a little one-two jab. Don't you love farce? It has... She's digging at him at the same time she's digging at herself. Mm. So it's important So keep the V and the F separate without making it too separate. I mean, let, you know, use the consonants to, to make that point. Don't you love farce? So it has, it'll have sli a, slight, uh, a, uh, a slightly more ironic tone. Because what the song is building to is the, the real bitterness of the last line, which is, don't bother their hair. So let's get a little jab in there. Don't you love farce? <laughs> I think it was one of the Guardian crossword setters who once said, I, I, I take as much pleasure in you getting the answer as you not getting the answer. He's basically sitting there <laughs> really enjoying these people not getting it, but going, I'm going to enjoy it just as much when you get Don't You Love Farce and get those two things separate. I'm going to enjoy that as much as I'm enjoying you not getting it right. There's a lovely moment in, in the book where he explains that once he realised he needed a song for uh, Glynis, he said, and she can't really sustain a note, so therefore everything needs to be short. And you, you, he, he takes you through his thought process where he says, they need to be short phrases, there are no held notes, that suggests questions. And yeah. then you end up with, isn't it rich? Are we a pair? Mm. It is brilliant. Amazing. Brilliant. Amazing. John, you wanted to say something about the actual production of the of these books. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it's, it would be so easy just to do collected lyrics with, uh, with, with kind of footnotes and, and essays, but they are physically beautiful. The end papers carry the kind of rubrics uh, that are in the preface, you know, God is in the details. Um, less is more. It's got photographs. It's got wonderful facsimiles of people's notes and sketches. Mm -hmm. So you've got mm -hmm. that sense of immediacy of of a, of a human being writing, uh, writing and annotating. They're just ele elegantly put together, beautiful, uh, rich kind of volumes. In that sense, so rare in publishing when you say this is yes, this is the vision I that I have. I would I want I want this to be perfect in every detail. How can they be so witty, yeah. yet also feel like scrapbooks yes. and treasure chests? They're superb pieces of publishing. Brilliant really bits are. of publishing. And, I, and, and also, I think, even in the bits where I was enjoying this morning, you know, you feel, you were saying earlier about he's obviously, he's not exactly settling scores, but he wants to talk about critics. So there's a brilliant essay in the second <laughs> volume. There is. And it's, what, it, what it is, is he's not going to be rude what he's going to do is he's going to show that he thought more about the job of the critic yes. and the difference between yes. a critic and a reviewer than anybody else. Oh, you're so and right. And he nails it completely. And then he, he I don't have to get cross because I understand what they're doing better than they understand themselves. And then <laughs> on, called, on to the next song. <laughs> it's called, here's the thing. The essay is called Critics and Their Uses. Yes. <laughs> and in, in, in Look, I Made a Hat. And then six pages later... And this is such a Sondheim manoeuvre. 
It's followed by a second essay called Awards and Their Uselessness. (laughs) Critics and Their Uses, Awards and Their Uselessness. I'm so pleased you mentioned those essays. We don't even have time to read from them. They're so brilliant and funny. But it's time for the 11 o'clock number. David Benedict. (laughs) As I say, my, my intro to Sondheim proper was going to see Gypsy. And Gypsy... Uh, alongside the virtues of sometimes lyrics, has a knockout score by the veteran Broadway composer Julie Stein. It was directed by Jerry Robbins, and it was based on the real-life character of Gypsy Rose Lee, who became kind of toast of high society by being a very, very classy, as she calls herself, ecdesiast and as everybody else in the world calls her stripper um and she you know she was this extraordinary character in american culture she wrote an entirely unreliable autobiography and it was turned into a musical uh, and walter kerr who um was famously horrible to uh sondheim in most of his reviews uh said the best damn musical i've seen in years which was plastered all over the, the publicity what extraordinary thing about the show is it's called Gypsy. It's about Gypsy Rose Lee, but it isn't. It's sort of really all about the mother. Ah, and that's why we heard about his mother at the top. And it ends <laughs> with this extraordinary scene, which is the musical equivalent of an operatic mad scene where the character just oversees, looks at her whole life. She's just had a row with her now very successful daughter. And she has this explosive scene and Sondheim writes about how that scene came to pass. The scene is called, um, uh, the song is called Rose's Turn. The making of Rose's Turn remains the high point of my theatrical life. At least the life I'd imagined it would be from the movies, as in the scene from Lady Be Good, in which Anne Southern and Robert Young composed the title song in two minutes of excited improvisation. Or the scene from The Saxon Charm, in which Robert Montgomery transforms Audrey Totter instantaneously from a vapid singer and into a cabaret star. Or in any number of other Hollywood moments of creative inspiration, usually taking place at nighttime and in the empty darkness of a theatre or a nightclub. My moment came about as follows. Rose's climactic breakdown was originally to be a surreal ballet in which Rose would be confronted by all the people in her life. How Jerry intended to use Ethel Merman in a ballet is something we'll never know, I'm sorry to say. (laughs) One week into rehearsals, Jerry suddenly announced that he didn't have time to choreograph the ballet. It would have to be a song and Julie and I should meet with him at the end of the day to discuss it. As it happened, Julie had a social engagement that evening, so I went to meet Jerry alone. At that point, we were rehearsing in a small theatre on the top floor of the new Amsterdam Theatre on 42nd Street. This theatre had been the location of Siegfeld's Midnight Frolic, an informal extravaganza held every now and then after the Follies itself, involving many of the Follies performers strutting their stuff in front of an invited champagne-guzzling audience of society knobs and friends of the producer. By 1959, this theatre was a shabby shell of its former self, but it had a ratty auditorium and a usable stage, and the atmosphere suited Gypsy well. I met Jerry around seven o'clock. The setting was excessively theatrical. 
Everyone had gone home and there was no light in the auditorium except on the stage, a ghost light, a single exposed bulb on a stand. It was like every shimmering nighttime rehearsal scene I'd ever loved in the movies. I suggested to Jerry that since he'd wanted all the people in the story to collide in a ballet, perhaps if Rose's breakdown were to be sung rather than danced, it would comprise fragments of all the songs associated with her and the people in her life. The songs we'd heard all evening colliding in an extended surreal medley consisting of fragments of the score. He asked me to improvise what I meant. I don't like improvising in front of other people, <laughs> but sitting at a piano in a deserted, ghostly auditorium with a man I considered a genius was too glamorous to resist. As I pounded out variations on the burlesque music, Jerry clambered onto the stage and started to move back and forth across it like a stripper, but a clumsy one, like Rose doing a strip. That was the beginning of three exhilarating hours of musical and choreographic improvisation as we shaped and constructed the number to be a summary of the score. I even improvised lyrics, something which was anathema to me. By the time we finished, Rose's turn was outlined and ready for detailed work. I brought it to Jerry the next morning with some trepidation, but a blast of enthusiasm, and we filled it out within the day. The crowd rises to its feet. <laughs> and now, the picture nearly complete. The cast must take their final bow. Huge thanks to David and Jason for helping us pay our respects to the words and work of an American genius. To our producer, Nikki Birch, for putting it together. And to Unbound for the best pies in London. <laughs> you, can, you can download all 154 previous episodes of Batlisted. Plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in colour and light on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising. Your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early. And for one thin dime more than a monthly Netflix subscription, <laughs> lot listeners get two extra lot listed a month. The off-Broadway show where we three share our enthusiasms with attendant comments, amplifications, dogmas and harangues about the things we've seen, heard and read in the previous fortnight. So many possibilities. <laughs> lot listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And this week's Cohort of Angels who've invested in our little roadshow are... Susan Freiberg, Suzanne Sutton-Curry, Toria and Dawn Carter. Thank you for your generosity and for enabling us to continue to do what we love and enjoy. We got through all of last year and we're here. We're still here. <laughs> David and Jason, I would like to ask you uh, to leave us with your... I'll start with you, Jason. Jason, what's your favourite Sondheim lyric? Okay, well, when it comes to things like just lines, I mean, I regularly find myself padding around the house singing, men are stupid, men are vain, love's disgusting, love's insane. I don't know why I do that. My partner and children <laughs> don't seem to object to it. But there's, I mean, there's so many little things like, you know, when a person's personality is personable, 
should notice it like a lump. It's harder than a matador coercing a bull. I mean, that's you know that really has been through the ringer, hasn't it? That rhyme. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. But I suppose yeah. as a as a complete lyric, I think it's sending the clowns. There was a really lovely thing that Nico Mooley wrote in the London Review of Books blog um, just after Sondheim died, which, with your indulgence, could I read it? It's very short. Yes, yes, please do. He said, and it's basically of that line, uh, that, that he calls it the hiccup line in Sending the Clowns. Me here at last on the ground, you in midair. That little tiny pause there. Mm. He said, every audience member is invited to insert their own little gasp the memory of a relationship gone wrong or someone we've lost. Mid-air could mean anything from over there to in heaven, but Sondheim has briefly forced our feet off the ground as well to hover in this delicate moment. And he's spot on about that. That, that, that song is an absolute piece of magic, lyrically and musically. It's magical. Mm, mm, mm. David? The point about Sondheim is he isn't merely a songwriter. He actually, he is a dramatist. Who uses music? Mm-hmm. You know, you you. It's I think pointless to compare him to to his peers. He's doing something different. He has a voice, like Edward Albee had a voice, like David Mamet has a voice, and and that's what's extraordinary and delightful. Though this has been, I feel it's faintly fraudulent because we've missed half the voice, <laughs> which is the music. That's not our brief, David. I tried, David. I tried. <laughs> I've got one short and one extremely short favourite. So my short favourite is from the last show for which he only wrote lyrics, um, which was uh, Do I Hear a Waltz, which was an extraordinarily unhappy collaboration with uh, Richard Rogers. Uh, it's a song um, in which the characters discuss in 1965 the horrors of flying. And um, <laughs> one of the characters says that he hates the food most of all uh, and then sings the shiny stuff is tomatoes the salad lies in a group the curly stuff is potatoes the stuff that moves is soup anything that is white is sweet anything that is brown is meat anything that is gray don't eat but what do we do we fly (laughs) that's the line reading thing again isn't it that's the i've timed the joke for you it's fantastic Brilliant. But my actual yeah. favourite is Back Again to Gypsy. I sound like a one-trick pony. I do like lots of other scores. There's a number for the strippers, which is where Gypsy gets the idea to become a stripper. They're booked into this um, two-bit theatre, and there's a stripper act, and they have this amazingly funny number called uh, you got to Get a Gimmick. And there's um, the first stripper mazeppa strips with a trumpet um electra uh, has a costume that is lit up with light bulbs and the third mm. one is tessie tura a joke in itself which which <laughs> which you know you nobody need get um uh, singers get it nobody else does and tessie tura does her strip in sort of piss elegance and she's got a very floaty costume (laughs) and she does ballet steps and then does bump and grind at the end of every movement and she just has the line where she's um she dismisses the other two and she says dressy tessie tura is so much more demure (laughs) and you just go that's brilliant because it just yeah, tells yeah, you yeah. everything about that. It tells you how her pretension. It tells you her lack of education. It just it 
it's a tiny, tiny moment that I think probably when I was a teen, I didn't really get. And then I read yeah, it later yeah, and went, yeah. oh, my God, that's kind of brilliant. He he says that was uh, his tribute to Frank Lesser, who wrote Guys and Dolls. It's vernacular and simple and clear and pithy and brilliant. Uh, David, you were talking about how you have above your desk your your extended play from West Side Story as a little totem. Well, up above my desk there, I have a lyric from Move On, which is the climactic song of Sunday in the Park with George. And it's such a simple lyric. And within context, it is the most moving thing. I will say it as with as steady a voice as I can. It is. And there it is. I'm going to read it off the wall. Anything you do, let it come from you. Then it will be new. Give us more to see. The four most inspiring lines for any um, creative yeah, yeah. person. Thanks, guys. Brilliant. Uh, this has been just amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, everyone, uh, Oh, now I'm getting choked up. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's been so much fun. Thank been. you, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, John, anything you wish to add? No, only that I should be listening to Sondheim pretty much nonstop all, all this coming week. Um, well, listen, we'll see you in a fortnight. Stay, make sure you listen to the very end of this because Stephen's got a message for all of us. And we'll see you next time. Thanks thank very you. much, everybody. Thanks, Thanks everybody. guys. Bye. 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 show above all to tell people that art is not an easy thing to do there is a natural myth about the artist i had it myself when i was a kid that you sit in your room whether you're a composer or a painter or a writer and wait for the muse to come and i've heard people say oh so and so is so talented as if all they had to do was get up in the morning and the painting was made or the or the song was written and they don't understand that it's exactly as much hard work and maybe harder than making a shoe or anything that you make out of nothing. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.